Before the last time I remember Dr. Fauci getting all this attention, it was like when he said, oh, we could never go to schools in the fall. Let me tell you something. We better be at school in the fall. The threat to kids is almost zero. And now Dr. Fauci has come out and he said, oh, I don't think we can play football this fall. Guess what? We're playing football. All right. And Dr. Fauci, I bet, will walk back his football comments at some point in the near future. The only positive I can say about this is that every time Fauci speaks now, less people listen. This dude in March, every single word that he said, people ate up like it was the gospel. Now he has contradicted himself. He said the opposite of what he said before so many times that his opinion is almost valueless. What the hell is that? Hey, Stone on Air, if you are not listening to Brian Stone, who has been a fixture in Chattanooga for years, you better be, or I'm going to ask you personally why you're not. I'm so happy I could die. They're like, Brian! Yeah, (laughs) Brian! Yes, my name is Brian! Finally, it's cool to be a Chattanoogan. Finally, it's cool to embrace this city. When some of us have been saying this for 25 years. Mic drop. Turn off the podcast. Stone on air. Yeah, just kill me now. Welcome in, everybody, to the supposedly for-profit venture known as the Stone on Air podcast. Available in weekly installments, generally speaking, in the middle of the week. Your midweek download destination for thousands here in the city of Chattanooga and surrounding areas. Every now and again, you get a little notification that somebody in Nashville or in Atlanta might give it a listen. But generally speaking, it's a Chattanooga-based podcast, but you likely already knew that. Happy Wednesday to you. It is the 24th, 6-24-2016. June 24th, 2016. Something very notable in my life went down that day. I will talk about that a little bit here on the back end of the open segment. Uh, Let's see. So the front end there, that is Clay Travis. Talked about him on the show at times, I'm pretty sure. Um, I used to love the man, adore Clay Travis. He's out of Nashville. He's pretty much, he's a a national figure now, mainly in sports world, but he, he has commentary on everything. And he's a lifelong moderate. Democrat, and he has gone all trumped out in his uh, in his approach to his content, and some of it is fine with me, and some of it not as much. Um, I give him time here and there, and you know, check out if he starts getting too old, broed out on me. But um, I uh, I I've listened to his podcast this week, and I grabbed that because I kind of I'm the, I'm the same way. I'm feeling the exact same thing with this. And uh, I'll expand on that just a little bit more in a second. First of all, a couple of things here from sports-wise. Speaking of which, uh, Major League Baseball finally made some kind of agreement to play 60 games. Woohoo! 60 games. Um, I can't say I'm excited about it. I will watch, but can't say I'm excited about it. That was not a noose in the uh, locker room or the garage, I should say, of Bubba Wallace and uh, at, T- at Talladega. I... I hate to say that I saw that one coming, but I kind of saw that one coming. Um, so, I mean, it's good news, but it also is going to be screamed as if it was made up fake news as well. Apparently, it was just one of those things you put on a garage to open, I guess, open and shut a door to be able to open and shut something or other. And it's tied up and it looks rough. I don't know. I don't know. I'll leave that one sitting right there. 
And uh, let's see. I'll go ahead and lay out the show for you right now. How about it? The uh, final segment of the show. I'm gonna tr- the, the the last two segments are gonna be totally fluffed out. It might not. They might not interest you at all, or it might interest you uh, a lot, like it did me. The final segment. What is TikTok? I've mentioned a few times that I'm spending a lot more time on this app recently. A little surprised about that. I didn't think that was going to be something that I would be interested in because I thought it was primarily for little children and teenagers and dumb kids, and it is, but it's it's more than that, and I'll uh, give you some examples of that and find out a little bit more about the app. And in the middle of the segment, I stumbled on this podcast the other day. I'll talk more about what it was once I get to the segment, but it was about sub-pop records and uh, just kind of an overview look back at the the history of sub-pop records in Seattle, uh, Washington, and I was enthralled with it. And I am going to uh, I'm going to play some a little bit a few clips from that and talk about uh, the Seattle grunge scene. Some of my favorite times of my life in the early '90s. We'll get to that in the uh, middle segment of the show. But real quick on Dr. Fauci. First of all, I, growing up, I always had, um, and this might be a cultural thing. It might not be just me, but this is the way I felt that there were certain positions of power that I just felt like you had to respect what they said. And that would be lawyers, generally speaking. That would be, and I'm talking about like the higher courts of the land, not like the sleazy, you know, better call Saul guy. Uh, doctors for sure. Like doctors came across to me as they were, you, they couldn't be questioned that what they say is what is actually happening. They're so smart, right? Because they're so incredibly smart. They must know what they're talking about. And the more that I've gotten older and been seeing more doctors and then watch this, what happening right now and other things that I've done back research on, these doctors are wrong all the time. And you can just use the kind of flipping, throwing around, you know, eggs when they were bad for you and then eggs when they're good for you and eggs when they're bad for you. I mean, like you can you can come up with some kind of formulation to make any kind of greater point that you're trying to make. Now, I'm not saying COVID-19 coronavirus is a hoax or fake or not real. It absolutely is. But so is the damn flu every single year. All right. And and it's just, this is just, you know, this is getting out of hand and it's turned into too big of a political um, just monster right now. And it's getting worse and worse every single day with there even being hints that Trump's about to remove the emergency status on the country. Should he shouldn't do that? I don't know. That's not what I'm here to talk about. My point being is just because this guy says all this stuff. Well, he's, it doesn't mean, first of all, that it should be believed, even though he does have a good track record, but especially when he's flip-flopped here and saying different things at different times. Who is Dr. Fauci anyway? Because I never even heard of the guy before, what, February, March? So just real quickly, Fauci served American public health in various capacities for over 50 years. This is from his wiki. And has been the advisor to every U.S. president since Ronald Reagan. From 83 to 2002, he was one of the world's most cited scientists in scientific journals. So, I mean, that's clearly means something. Uh, he played a significant role in the early 2000s in creating the emergency president's emergency plan for AIDS relief and in driving development of biodefense drugs and vaccines following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And the last little highlight thing I hear, it says, uh, in May of uh, this year, so just a month ago, political talk show host Bill Maher cautioned uh, against lionizing Fauci playing clips in which in late January of this year, Fauci described the coronavirus as, quote, very low risk. And in March, that, quote, there is no reason to be walking around in a mask. And when I saw that, remember, 
If you listen to the show every week, you you probably will. But if you don't, uh, shame on you. You should. But I played the clip of Fauci saying wearing a mask is almost counterproductive. I am paraphrasing here because of people constantly messing with it and taking it on and off and basically contaminating yourself almost worse. He said that. He said it. And then now he's wearing it every day. The guy is kind of all over the place, and I just don't really care what he has to say anymore. And uh, scientists and doctors and higher court lawyers and judges and people who I've always thought growing up were people who were above the pettiness that is the average person walking around. That's that's not true at all. <laughs> that's not even kind of true. I mean, every single person is just as flawed as anybody else just because you have an elite expertise in some kind of subject matter that most of us can't even begin to think about how it could possibly be humanly possible to do doesn't mean you're not still a terribly flawed person, a ter- terribly biased person. I guess I'm not trying to make too greater of a point other than... Uh, a doctor could be just as off on something as some average asshole walking around. And um, I, I've been over this for so long, and I never really was on board to begin with. I mean, I'm just going to come right out and say it. It's dangerous. It's serious. But um, wrecking an economy and ruining other areas of health, mental health is specifically, and, cha- and, and, and tipping everybody's boat over of their lives is very damaging on people's well-beings and health and financial health. I mean, sometimes you just got to look around and try to figure out, you know, hey, this this isn't working this way, and we might have to do something different. And this is another one of those cases where I feel like I'm always right down the middle and just say, hey, listen, if this is concerning to you, treat it that way. I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm not gonna. I, I, I'm not going to turn this into some kind of uh, rallying cry for a political agenda. If it's concerning, and especially if somebody is from the categories of, uh, what, uh, elderly, compromised immune system, those kinds of things, yeah, 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 you need to be, that person needs to be very concerned, but that person needs to be concerned anyway. And uh, and if you don't want to leave your house, if somebody doesn't want to leave their house, fine, don't. I don't have to do it too, <laughs> okay? So uh, that's kind of where I'm at on that. All right, all right, all right. Let's get the uh, the fun part out of the way here. Today, uh, I was today years old when I learned that Love Buzz from Nirvana was actually a cover song and not an actually written song by Kurt Cobain and the members of Nirvana. I found that out, not literally today, but just this week. And that there were a couple of songs there, and I looked at John and I said, we should do a single with these guys. And we felt the strongest track in their set was Love Buzz, which was a cover by The Shocking Blue. A cover song. It was a cover song. So I will tell you, when we released the single, it got a tremendous response. So this record is, what, 31 years old? Was it 90 that it came out? Maybe 89? I've always just thought this was a Nirvana song. So I was today years old. When I found that out, when I was listening to the Sub Pop podcast that I will get into in the second segment of the show. A guy named Clint Powell's done a lot of marketing stuff, some radio things, has a ton of podcasts, great guy. He um, he doesn't do a ton of content that I'm overly interested in, but he is good at what he does. He's good friends with Jeff Styles, and Clinton made this little 
uh, compilation of Father's Day messages from some of the people he has on his show regularly and just people in the media and just random people. And Jeff Styles was uh, one of them. And I can't identify with this because I don't have kids, but I have a dad, so I understand how that goes. Today's coolest thing is Jeff Styles. And I'll be totally frank here. My kids, and I broke out with kids, all know this. I never really wanted kids. I didn't particularly like kids being around me. Kids made me nervous. And God has a sense of humor, so he made sure I had a bunch of them. And the day that my son came into this world, Eli, the oldest one, um, everything changed. Everything changed. And for months, we didn't even turn on the TV. We just had this little ball of entertainment there in front of us. When I am low, when I am depressed, when I am happy, the memories that come back to me all involve my kids and being a dad. The golden haze of nostalgia and the best memories that I have all involve my kids. I think I'm going to remember the conversations I had and the time I spent and the conglomerate hugs that I shared with my children. And every single time they tell me through words or deed that I was a good dad, that's what counts. I just thought that was really nice. Uh, after spending the day with my dad on uh, or the afternoon on uh, Sunday, and uh, I'm not real into family uh, connections the way a lot of people are. I love them. I love them. I, I would do many things for them. I don't know that I would do anything for them, but I would do many things, and I enjoy spending time with them occasionally, right? But overall, I don't do family the conventional way. It is kind of a how I am with everything. You know, you do you, I'll do me, and let's just try to stay out of each other's way. And if you need us, you know, you need some help, give me a ring. I can try my best. We'll see how it goes, that kind of thing. But uh, I do every now and again get that, like, oh, that was so nice. And I thought that that was um, certainly worth playing. And then today's worst idea is I didn't know what category to put it in. I just wanted to play it because I thought it was good. His name is Michael Che from Saturday Night Live. If you. I uh, still watch that show. I try to. It's still good. Um, people say it's not, but that's just because people are old and don't follow pop culture. Um, but he is on Weekend Update, uh, one of the two anchors. He is a black man. Today's worst idea is his stand-up and talking about, wait, black lives matter? As a country, we just can't agree. We just fight about everything. We can't even agree on black lives matter. That's a controversial statement. Black lives matter matter not matters more than you just matters <laughs> matters just matters <laughs> that's where we're starting the negotiations <laughs> matters we can't agree on that shit what the fuck is less than matters <laughs> black lives exist can we say that can we say uh, that controversy. <laughs> that's good stuff, Michael Che. And uh, there you go. All right. So 15 minutes in here. I'll do a few minutes on this and get out and get to the Sub Pop Records uh, segment coming up next. So what happened four years ago? This exact day. It was a Friday, June 24th, 2016. That was the day I was fired from Talk Radio 102.3. And it is officially something that I am completely and long over. Probably was last year. I don't even remember what I talked about on around this time last year. I certainly have done it every 
every year since. Um, I still, I'm still never going to subscribe to the theory that I got told many times, which is cliche, but sometimes real. It's the best thing that ever happened to you. Getting fired from a job I spent uh, 15 years or more of my life trying to get was never going to be the best thing that ever happened to me. But has it led to a lot of other opportunities and kind of some self-awareness and self-evaluation and um, different things I wouldn't have stumbled on without it? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And a lot of that has been really good. And um, I'm not... I still get considered as a guy on the radio, and I'm hard. I am not on the radio now. It's because no one listens to this stuff, and the listening podcast world is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't know if I'll, it'll ever become a, a, a very highly monetized thing for me or not, but um, I'm happy where I'm at. I'm at peace with the decisions I've made in life and where I'm at. I mean, I make flawed, terrible, awful decisions all the time, but I'm at peace where I'm at. So that was four years ago, exactly today, right around noon 12 15 or so it was in the first during the first segment of let's talk money yes a show i was a contributor on i got pulled out of it in the middle of the damn thing we were talking brexit that day and just a couple of things here real quick for a couple minutes as i close this uh, segment up i didn't really expand on the Corey french the fridge the the local band singer who had the all lives matter kind of post that got him what we thought fired but he was not fired from wanderlinger he's a um some kind of partner with them. He's not like an employee. So I have been told by their ownership he has not been fired, but everybody thinks he has. And I stood up for him as he was getting lynch mobbed. And I didn't get too many responses. Um, I got a couple, and they were pretty predictable. And a couple of them were deleted off Twitter, and they were much more aggressive and then more thoughtful was put in there because I didn't take the bait. I don't take the bait on social media. And... That's what I'm going to kind of preach to you, my very intelligent listener, which I think you probably already don't get baited, but something to help spread the word with your family members and your friends and anybody involved with something going on with social media. It's okay to just shut the fuck up. It's okay to just shut up. And I did uh, I did my podcast because that's where I that's where I get out and do my thing. But man, this is this is a commitment to sit down and listen to this. And these jackholes, you know, they're that are have their uh, virtual pitchforks and torches on social media trying to bury somebody, somebody that they, that they are, you know, are contemporaries with and it, and some of them are colleagues with and some of them are friends with destroying this guy because they don't like something he says. It's the it's a virtual lynch mob and it's wrong and I'm vehemently against it. And cancel cancel culture is poison. I hate it. But so I'll tell you everything I feel right here, but it's a commitment to do it. And I knew these numb nuts with an attention span of a gnat wouldn't be able to sit 27 minutes and listen to this. And they wouldn't have a way to put it out there and quote it like and put me on a big uh, marquee with a big, you know, flashing lights. And I knew only a few people would do that. And so I knew the responses weren't going to be really sharp and really uh, bold and, um, and, and vast in any way. And they weren't. And I didn't say a word. I didn't respond. Barry Corder wrote his piece on it, and it ripped the scab off. And, it, and, it, and the, the Times Free Press thread on Facebook was hundreds, maybe even thousands deep, just recreated all over again because the self-control of the average asshole walking around is terrible in regular life, and it's sure as hell terrible in virtual life, on Facebook and Twitter and wherever else. It is 
pathetic how adults can't just walk away from a thread. What are these people doing? And this is embarrassing. I mean, it really, really is. And Corey is not doing himself any favors. The guy from the fridge, the man, the guy behind all, you know, the, the center of all this. And I had people telling me, oh, Barry shouldn't have written that piece. And it's just, you know, that's fine. If you want to think that, that I don't care. But Corey wouldn't, still won't stop and still responds to all these threads. And it's just okay to just shut up, especially if you have kind of stepped in it. And, and, and even if you feel like you're being wronged, just shut up. And I had the hardest time for a long time digesting that too, because I say this all the time because it's pretty, I'm right in the sweet spot of where this is true. The chances are, whoever's listening to this, unless we have the exact same habits our whole life, I've been on social media longer than you because you're either older and haven't been on it enough or as much, or you're younger and hasn't been, haven't been on it as much. I was here when this shit was being developed. At 21, 2, 3, and 4 years old, when an adult didn't hardly know how to log on to anything outside of eBay, right? So, I, it took me a long time to stop being that person on social media. And it, it didn't matter as much back then because there wasn't that many people there. Now that it is the actual, it is reality, what's happening there is real, you, and what you say and do matters and is impactful, Go away from it. Go away from it. If you want to talk about something just benign with your family members or your friends, have at it. But people just can't stop. And it's like children, like you know, kids. They have no, no impulse control, right? I'm seeing this with adults that are way old enough to know it better and just can't stop. And when you finally realize that getting into those weeds and doing all that is actually... It sucks, it's lame, it's not fun, and brings you no joy. It's liberating. Liberating. I'll get on Twitter and scream about something every now and again because it's yelling in the woods. Nobody's there. Five people might react to it. And I see garbage on Facebook all the time, and likely you do as well. And if I were to start putting this mess like I do sometimes on Twitter or like I used to do or like a lot of people are still doing, it creates a massive fire and I'm not, I'm not, I'm out of the game of playing around on the internet fires and, and with trolls and jerks and all that. My guess is you probably are tired of that as well. Just that, that's the new movement. Shut up on, not, not delete Facebook. I have all the social medias you want. Hell, I'm on TikTok now. I'm going to talk about it at the end of the show. Just shut the fuck up. <laughs> that's it. That's the message. Hashtag STFU. Okay, let's transition. Coming up next, if you were from the ages of, oh, I don't know, 12 or 13 to 25 years old, middle class, Caucasian, there is a very good chance that the Seattle sound, the grunge scene, was something that you were at least somewhat interested in on the low end to, well, like I was, basically obsessed. One of the more influential players in that movement was Sub Pop Records, and their signing of what would eventually become one of the most influential bands in the history of rock and roll. I will expand on that with the help from NPR coming up next. Now back to more Stone on Air. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. Stoneonair.com. There are few things that I think are going to stand the test of time than the word grunge. 
I think a lot of these bands will long be forgotten, but that word grunge and the style and time and the gestalt, you know, everything that it summons yeah. will stay. This is Mud Honey. The song is called Into Your Shtick. It's almost like I wrote it. Early on in the Seattle Sound, the grunge movement really is should be more attributed to Green River and Mud Honey than it was to Nirvana. Nirvana is just the band that ended up becoming the the international sensation because of well, because of great talent. But early on, they were just loud trash rock too. I mean, Allison Chains was trash rock for a while. Soundgarden, trash rock. Just meaning just loud, aggressive, very punk-infused kinds of um, styles of music that was just was all the rage in the, in the little dingy clubs throughout Seattle and other areas across the country, uh, but mostly primarily in the mid to late 80s and into the 90s. And then, of course, everybody mostly knows where it went from there. But Soundgarden got... Uh, big labels behind them and producers and uh, lots of money and were able to polish their sound. Nirvana obviously did that with Nevermind. Uh, Allison Chains absolutely did that. I mean, they, they have all the talent in the world too, but their their trashiness had to fade off when they wanted to get real and try to a, a, appeal to a mass uh, a, a mass audience. Mud Honey and Green River. They never did that. First of all, Green River dissolved, and then that I'll get to that here in a minute. And then that Mud Honey came out of that. I don't know enough about the band Mud Honey to talk about them at, at length, but they continued making that same trash rock forever. Maybe their talent just hit a wall and they couldn't go further than that. I don't know. But that original sound, that original grunge sound, which will get to the uh, the origins of the, the word grunge in the sense of a music genre category here in just a few minutes, that original sound, that groundwork was laid by Mark Arm, Green River, and Mud Honey, uh, amongst plenty others for sure, but they were the first signed to Sub Pop Records. And I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit here, so let me slow myself down and uh, get back on the show sheet track here. Uh, there's this podcast put together by NPR. Chances are you probably have heard of it. It's hosted by a guy named um, Guy Raz, G-U-Y-R-A-Z. He's a few years older than me, probably. Very good host, but he's just a dork. And I don't love his style. He's very, very good at it. But uh, he's not hip enough. He's a hipster, but he's not hip enough to regularly ask cool questions. But he keeps the thing flowing well, and NPR is heavily staffed and heavily edited, and they make it sound very good. And they have one of their of many, many just volumes of different kinds of podcasts NPR produces. They have How I Built This. And the very first one I ever listened to was Mark Cuban. And it's just basically, let's talk about how you became what you are, what you've built, what you've done. If it's a subject matter that you're interested in, it's great. If it's not, then maybe not. But, I mean, there's an Uber one. There's an Airbnb. There's Starbucks. There's Five Guys. I mean, it, it spans a, a very big uh, landscape of subjects. 
and uh, this one happened to be of Sub Pop Records. And I was leaving the house and going to be running around in my car most of the time for a good, you know, 45 minutes or so. And I was just scrolling. I said, oh, hell, yes, Sub Pop. Because even though I was a big fan of the logo, I mean, if you didn't have the logo, a sticker or a shirt that said Sub Pop, you weren't a Seattle grunger. You know, you weren't true to that culture if if you didn't idolize Sub Pop because of their connections with the scene. And I thought, hell, hell yes. It's an hour and a half long with the two creators of Sub Pop. And it was so, so good. I urge you to listen to the entire thing. I'm going to have 10 clips from it, primarily focusing on their signing of the band Nirvana. Coming up here in just a couple of minutes. I'm going to get through this real quick and get to it as quick as I can. I just want to give a little background to Sub Pop. But I was listening to the podcast this weekend, and I got home. And normally if I get home and I'm not done listening to something, I just pause it and come back to it later. I immediately went upstairs, cast it to the TV, and had to finish it. I was like, you could talk about Sub Pop Records and all these bands and everything you've done for hours. It was fantastic. But real quick on Sub Pop, if you are not entirely uh, sure about the lineage, I'll uh, just briefly do it here. Because there was a lot I didn't know. So, so much I didn't know. Sub Pop founded in 1986 by, uh, we'll just say Bruce and Jonathan rather than say their last names over and over again. So Bruce and Jonathan is who we're going to hear from here in a little bit. The origins of Sub Pop can be traced back to the early 1980s with a fanzine called Subterranean Pop that focused exclusively on American independent records and labels. Fanzine, meaning like a just a publication that somebody just puts out because they're a big fan of a certain thing. It's not put together by a news corp company or a magazine media company. Generally speaking, I would that's how I would uh, define what a fanzine back then was. Later, they shortened the name to Sub Pop, and began including cassette tapes, compilation tapes of underground rock bands. The Sub Pop Number no. 5 cassette, released in 1982, sold 2,000 copies. <laughs> 2,000 copies, that's pretty good for 1982. By 1986, they had released their first Sub Pop LP, the compilation Sub Pop 100, which featured material by artists including uh, Sonic Youth, uh, Naked Ray Gun, Wipers, and Scratch Acid. The last three, never heard of them. I would say the chances are you likely heard of Sonic Youth. Again, another noise, trash rock band from the 80s. And I don't mean that derogatory at all. Uh, Seattle group Green River chose to record their Dry as a Bone EP, and then I'll put this in just for my knowledge and memory because I own them later on, uh, Dry as a Bone and Rehab Doll were their first two, only two albums. I wanted to name my garage band Rehab Doll when I was in the 90s after the name of that record, and that was in June of 86. Now, Green River was uh, Mark Arm, who would eventually go on to be the lead man for Mud Honey, and the bass, uh, excuse me, drummer, I can't remember his name, but he later went on to form or at least be a co-founder of the Presidency of the United States of America, now, I know they weren't part of the grunge movement, but they were just a few years later, also out of Seattle. And Stone and Jeff, Gossard, Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament, guitar and bass, went on to Mother Love Bone, who then, after Andy Wood died, who was the inspiration to Temple of the Dog, because Andy Wood and Chris Cornell were best friends and uh, or very tight friends and roommates when he died of a heroin overdose. Shortly after that, Ed Ved comes into the picture with Stone and Jeff. They create Pearl Jam, Temple of the Dog later. Mark Arm goes on to Mud Honey, and you can see where the tentacles of this Seattle scene start. Going back to why I'm saying that Green River is one of the most instrumental sounds and influencers of 
the Seattle sound of the 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 genre grunge and uh, launching what would eventually be the, one of the most influential bands in the world, Nirvana. Now, I could spend a five-hour podcast talking about the, uh, the, the Seattle sound, and I won't do that because I don't want to bore anybody. But hearing the story of how Sub Pop signed Nirvana and just the kind of timeline from start to finish was just plain awesome. And when I hear things like that, it makes me wonder, like, why would I ever sit down and watch a dumb movie? Why would I ever sit down and watch a stupid TV show outside of just a hand few selected when there's stories like this? Just dudes hanging around in the 80s, screwing around with a fan magazine, eventually put some music on a couple of cassette tapes, and eventually with just a few tens of thousands of dollars in their, you know, to their available to them, stumble on signing one of the biggest bands in the history of the world. It's a fun, fun story, and I suggest that you uh, listen to this in its entirety if it's something that interests you. Keep in mind, I'm taking about seven minutes worth of audio out of an hour and a half. It is, uh, it's a deep dive, but it's a fun and 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 it flies by dive because it's really good stuff. So let's get to it here. All right, so they're doing this show. Turn that volume up there. Um, they're doing this show via Skype, I'm pretty sure, because they were going to do a live recording on stage, which I'm glad they didn't because I don't usually like how those turn out. But uh, the two voices between Jonathan and Bruce sound very similar, so I'm not sure who's who in a lot of these. It's not overly that important. These are all pretty short clips, most of them under 30 seconds or so. And we're talking about the uh, the term grunge, so we can come back to that. They they didn't even mean to stumble into this to this question. That uh, just kind of organically happened. The name, the word grunge, the terminology grunge, the genre defining word. Where did that come from? It turns out Bruce. At this time, I know it was Bruce, one of the partners of the the founders of Sub Pop, coined the phrase the term grunge when he was uh, putting out a uh, an ad for one of his uh, mud, mud Honey shows or records or something like that. I wrote some ad copy for the first Green River record, and I ah, wrote Green River. ultra-loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation. And I put grunge in all caps. In my mind, it just meant music that had uh, a grittiness to it, as opposed to the polish of a lot of music on major labels. Certainly the vibe, and I think the reason the word stuck is because the whole vibe of what was going on in Seattle was super resourceful and lo-fi. Guys walking around in jeans with holes in it, t-shirts with holes in it, pawn shop guitars, uh, distorted amplifiers. It just, it just worked in my mind. That is so, so good. Ultra loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation. And he just kind of spoke to that. It was very uh it was raw raw music it was supposed to be raw heavily punk influenced with this kind of new style of uh, of of rock and roll and when it became the monster that it was everything got very polished soundgarden allison chains pearl jam and even nirvana a- after they uh, came out with nevermind all was very very polished it is kind of a secret to success that's why that noise in the garage generally doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, they go on to talk about the first time they heard a demo tape from what would become Nirvana. We first got this tape. Um, there weren't so many people enthusiastic about them. Bruce, do you remember the, do you remember the first time you heard the, the, the demo from Nirvana? I do. Picture, if you will. Uh, I was still working at Muzak, 
And I do want to say that a lot of the musicians in the Seattle scene were also working for the elevator music company, Muzak. So imagine the first time I heard Nirvana was at Muzak, (laughs) and I listened to it with Mark Arm, who also worked there. And our response was a little ho-hum. The vocals sounded good, but we thought that some of the songwriting was a little busy. It was kind of a slow build with Nirvana, and... They just kept getting better and better and better. So the Elevator Music uh, Muzak Company is based out of Seattle. And remember, Mark Arm is from Mud Honey and Green River. And uh, clearly at this time, Mark and that's Bruce, I believe, uh, of Sub Pop are kind of, they're not exactly complete partners, but you can tell that they're pretty clear, they're pretty close. At this point, they're in a soul on the planet who knows who Nirvana is. Well, between the two, Jonathan and um, and Bruce, one was intrigued, not so much, but they never made a deal with a band if they didn't do this one thing first. Well, no, well, I said, which was true, that all the decisions that we made, Bruce and I had to, you know, we had to both agree to it. And at the time... No, I wasn't going to say Bruce thinks you guys suck, which wasn't the truth. <laughs> but I was prone to making statements like that because it was the easiest way to deal with it. But what I said is, let us know when you're playing and we will come down and we want to, you know, what was true is that we didn't sign any bands unless we had seen them live. Yes, and clearly they were impressed by that. I don't remember how far they went into that um, when I was listening to the show. Again, these are all just the quick cuts. But they now continue to recall how the signing of the band actually took place and some of the terms of that deal. One record and two options. And they wanted, I think, a firm commitment to getting a big advance for their next record. I think that was what was driving the interest in the contract. John, does that sound about right to you? I don't remember that, but that could be. That was my memory, very specifically. But I remember the band was in John's little office, and there was this ritual of the signing. And I just remember thinking, hmm... This could be significant, you know? Maybe this is actually a big deal because we'd never actually literally signed a band before. All right, so when I put this together, I stumbled on that and I heard that for the second or third time, and I thought, wait a second. You just said you never signed a band unless you'd seen them live. And then now you're saying after that that you, uh, you've you never actually literally signed a band before. It threw me off a little bit, so I went back and listened to it again. Turns out that this was such a ragtag situation back in the day, and this is just a different world. They did a lot of literal handshake deals, like not actually putting out a contract that had you know all the specifics and signatures and legalities behind them. Most of everything they had done up until that point were literal handshakes. That's how upstart this thing was and how remarkable it is to think about that they're actually doing a signing with the band that would become the monsters that is Nirvana. So Bruce continues to talk about being nervous about the terms of the two follow-ups and how much that might cost. If I may, I remember looking at the contract and feeling very nervous. Uh, I remember the amount for the second option being like 
12,000 and then the following one being 24,000 or something like that, which I was thinking, how can we possibly promise these guys we're going to give them $12,000 because that's way too much money? Okay, that was my thinking at the time. And I think John's thinking was, we'll, we'll figure it out, which we did. <laughs> they sure as hell did. Can't figure out whether we'll ever be able to come up with $12,000 for the follow-up to the first record Bleach. We'll move on here. Um, this is a typical NPR guy, Roz, typical lame question. I probably shouldn't have even added it to it, but he uh, he said, did you ever think that they could be this big? Of course he didn't, dumbass. But anyway, I thought the answer was at least worth listening to. No. I don't. I mean, speaking for myself, I didn't think that way. I thought that they were going to be really successful, but our metric for success was much more modest than even the bands. And that's what actually got us into trouble is that Kurt would tell me regularly, we should be selling a million of these. Hmm. And I'd be going, you you don't understand, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Boy, did I not know what I was talking about. Well, the inevitable is going to happen. Nirvana leaves the independent label, jumps ship to the major label, and it changes everything. Sub Pop hooks uh, Nirvana up with little known at the time, Butch Vig, would go on to be one of the most influential producers in alternative grunge rock music in the 1990s, later go on to be a founding member of the band Garbage. And the grapevine, the grapevine starts to whisper that it... It appears that the band is looking for a uh, shopping for a new label for the second album. We we had uh, a relationship with a producer named Butch Vig, and we had sent some artists over to Madison, Wisconsin. He was an upcoming regionally known producer at the time, so we sent Nirvana there in 1990, I believe it was May. They were supposed to record their next album. And that tape wound up being a demo that got shopped to majors, unbeknownst to myself and John. Yeah, I remember Bruce and I being in Europe, and I remember having a conversation, somebody telling me that, you know, Nirvana is out shopping for a deal. And I was like, I just remember being far from home and going... You know, our ba our big band's leaving us. The uh, the next thought here is something I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the other side of the audio clip. They talk about a culture back in those times that I think are still, I think that culture is still relevant, or at least up until when I was still in my 20s and 30s, of sellout culture quote-unquote uh, you you didn't indie bands didn't go from indie to major label very often i'll have more thoughts on that after this clip and you have to realize at that time it was very rare for a band to go to a major from the indie system as a culture bands in that system really felt aligned with the indie culture so there was a big dividing line there and to be perfectly honest i was in a state of shock. I remember walking around, uh, I went to bumper shoot, and to, I'll be perfectly honest with you, I was walking around and I started to cry. And you have to realize John and I put so much of our heart into the label and we had, you know, we were legendary for 
bouncing checks and barely having enough cash, but we created a miracle with that first those first few years of keeping that business alive and developing the buzz and the hype and the excitement of Seattle. And then our star band uh, left us for a major. I was crushed. That that's None of that is, is wrong or not factual, except it's misleading to this. Well, maybe misleading is the wrong word. When you say that indie bands didn't usually jump to major labels, it was because most of the indie bands suck. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this kind of baked in to any music scene, and this city struggles with it a lot. And I'm sure places like Nashville and Austin, Texas have a whole different level of this. But this kind of everybody's against us kind of thing. There's a click, and people won't. People are are holding us down. And uh, if you if you make that move, you're a sellout. And the thing is, is all these people in this situation in the early '90s, late '80s are kids. They're kids. They're 20-something years old. They're dipshits. They don't know any better, and they're jealous. Envy is a very strong, powerful thing at any level of your life, but especially when you're in your 20s. I remember thinking in bands when I was in my 20s and 30s and radio industry people and anything I was being competitive in, I was like, oh, they're getting they're getting the, the, the upper edge here. Someone's helping them out. They're holding me down. They're holding us down. And that was a culture, like your your sellouts, if you take a big deal and make a lot of money, <laughs> that, that's the dumbest ass kind of uh, childish approach or, um, you know, just mindset. But at that time, everybody was uh, rather young, as I still consider kids into their 20s, because our societal norms don't allow people to grow out of that until they're very old. I'm guilty of that as much as anybody. So he goes on to ask him about, uh, as the grunge movement takes off, Alice in Chains is huge, Soundgarden is huge, Nirvana is obviously massive, Pearl Jam, who was never on Sub Pop, and neither was Alice in Chains, but uh, Soundgarden and, and Nirvana was, did they feel like they were missing out on some of the mania, some of the scene? I mean, hell, you you guys uh, you coined the term grunge rock. Did you feel left out at all? Not really. I think my feeling was that Sub Pop had done a great job of hyping the scene, hyping Seattle. And we were just all along on a similar ride. You know, when Pearl Jam played their drop in a park show and 20, 30,000 people showed up, I was there on the side of the stage enjoying the show. And I just felt a collective energy mm. that was coming out of the city. And at the time, it was, it was very exciting. So, yeah, people came from all over the country because of what they saw in singles, what they heard in the records that Sub Pop put out. And we were instrumental in creating a mythical Seattle, which exists to this day. And he's talking about singles, the movie, which was released in 92 or 93. It featured all these bands and the way of life and the counterculture, subculture of Seattle, the mythical nature that uh, they were talking about, and fascinated people like me. Final cut I have here as we're running along this segment. Because of the terms of the two follow-ups that they were so concerned about with Nirvana on the sub-pop label after they were done with Bleach and the promise of the two follow-ups, well, they ended up doing pretty well in the end, at least in the short term. The way things played out, we had points because of the contract on Nirvana's records. So we went from having no money to actually having 
millions of dollars. Because ah, because when Nirvana signed with yes. Geffen, they had to pay you some of that. Yes, and then our Bleach album, I think at this point, has sold like two million copies. But I will also say, and this historical fact is some, sometimes obscured, at the same time that Smells Like Teen Spirit was rolling out and theoretically the money was starting to come in, we were releasing a record by Mudhoney called Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge that sold 100,000 copies, and that came out at the same time. In, any, in a parallel universe, that would have been our big hit. So there's more strands to that story. It's such a good story, hour and a half long, How I Built This from NPR. I implore you to go give it a listen. The uh, falling out between the two, inevitably, as you likely would have guessed, happens late into the 90s. In 1994, they sign a 49% uh, share deal with uh, Warner Brothers Music, and they um, they continued to have a lot of really successful bands in their portfolio. The Fleet Foxes, The Foles, Beach House, The Postal Service, Flight of the Concours, Sleater Kenny, Blitz and Trappin', Father John Misty, some others you probably haven't heard of, and The Shins which I absolutely love The Shins. I didn't know. I was today years old when I found out that The Shins were originally a sub-pop act. I could do this all day long, but I won't. Hopefully you enjoyed that, as it is one of my most cherished time of my of my youth, the Seattle Sound, the grunge movement. Well, let's fast forward to now a time, nowadays. The hell is TikTok? Try to figure it out. Coming up next. Stone on air. We'll be right back. Oh, darling, what juicy gossip I have for our listeners. Stoneonair.com. TikTok is an app that's not really well understood by many people older than Generation Z, those roughly born after 1995. And even within that generation, it's not totally understood. But the social media app is actually huge, with over 1.5 billion registered users. As you'll soon see, the company behind the app is turning to AI for success. And you'll also see that this makes them different from the current generation of social media apps. So who's behind the app and why is it so popular? You may be thinking, well, who cares? But the rise of this platform may soon take many by surprise. Another Seattle band, Screaming Trees. God, I love, love this band. This is our most popular song. Nearly Lost You. Mark Lanigan is the lead singer. Went on to do the super group with Lane Staley from Alice in Chains. Mike McCready from Pearl Jam. Mad Season. He's got the uh, Mark Lanigan band now. If we hadn't uh, canceled 2020... Mark Lanigan was going to be at uh, Shaky Knees in Atlanta. And I would have gone and likely seen him. Anyway, just I got to throw that in there real quick. All right, I will try to make this quick because I'm already almost to 50 minutes on this week's show. I just, you know me, and when I talk about I love playing with audio, and I have spent a lot of time, again, uh, cutting up audio, and it is my favorite thing to do when it comes to the podcast world. TikTok, you've heard of it. Kids love it. And it's turning out more than just kids love it. But what exactly is TikTok? And just how big? How big is uh is this app right about now here in the middle of 2020? Oh, shit. Sorry. I turned that off. 
and turn that on. To give you an idea of the size of TikTok, it's the number one non-gaming app on the App Store in the United States and the number one social media app on all platforms. In just two years, it's come to rival Netflix, YouTube, and Facebook. The company now has 20,000 staff with offices in the United States, Japan, Europe, Southeast Asia, Brazil, India, and of course, China. Yeah, it's insane. Kids love this thing. And um, I'm just now started looking at it in the last few weeks and am finding myself not obsessed with it by any means, but very, very highly intrigued. So what exactly is TikTok? TikTok is a short form video sharing app. Most people mistakenly think it's only for lip syncing or music performance. But after spending some time with the app, it's really anything people want it to be. From comedy and memes to stunts, science experiments and other creative uses. The time limit for content is usually 15 seconds. And what I like about it is what he just said there. And that's what Twitter has always been for the most part. It's this app is whatever you want it to be. It's uh, it's it's the opposite of an iPhone, right? An iPhone tells you exactly how your phone's going to work. And here's how it all is. And this is all prepackaged for you. That's Facebook. It's prepackaged for you. This is what it is. Um, you know, I don't know. Snapchat. This is kind of like a re-envisioned version of Snapchat with just a, a, a different a different overall uh, mission statement from the front end, but definitely to, to gear towards younger people. I know I'm kind of roundabout not making a ton of sense, but uh, let's get to the final clip here I have of uh, just what is TikTok. Who owns this monster? TikTok is owned by the Chinese company ByteDance, which was founded in 2012 and is headquartered in Beijing. ByteDance is currently worth 75 billion US dollars, making it the most valuable privately held company in the world. The founder, Zhang Yiming, was a former Microsoft software engineer and started the company in his 20s. The company ByteDance is like a Chinese version of Facebook with several other popular sites in the region. After releasing an AI-powered news aggregator and a chat app, they would turn to video. In 2016, they launched a short-form Chinese video app called Douyin, it proved to be popular with over a million users in a short amount of time. In 2017, they would expand the concept to the world with a new name, TikTok. There was competition though. Another short video platform called Musical.ly was already at the top of the app charts. Founded in 2014, Musical.ly gained a lot of traction after the failure of Vine in 2016. Users migrated from Vine to Musical.ly. ByteDance saw an opportunity and would buy Musical.ly for $1 billion in 2017, eventually merging the two platforms and their associated user base. TikTok now has a monopoly on the micro video app market and in just two years is comparable to the old guard social media websites. All right, so I know his uh, accent is a little thick. The China company is called ByteDance, as in Gigabyte, right? B-Y-T-E, ByteDance. And... Um, Vine, if you remember, that was the short video app that went under because Twitter is inept as a uh, technological uh, tech, tech company. They have a great uh, service. I love it, but they're inept at making money, and they own Vine. It went under. Musically, I never had any participation in, but it was basically dancing and uh, uh, lip-syncing the songs, and they kind of integrated that into what TikTok is. But Jesus Christ, it, Musical.ly was sold for a billion dollars a billion dollars is this real money is this monopoly money and the bite dance company is worth 75 billion dollars and most people above the age of 25 
don't even know what it is. I'll give you a couple examples here as I try to wrap this one up pretty quick. I have six clips here, all audio, obviously. This is a visual medium, so I tried to pick anything that I could just kind of set it up what it is. You've heard a little bit of them in the last few weeks. This is just a video of a guy filming his girlfriend walking towards him in his big-ass red uh, redneck uh, truck. And as she's walking up, and she's very pretty, he is. Uh, this is what he's saying. You know what, fellas? I think we all have the same ultimate goal. It's to get a woman that's so fine and so badass that people stop and go, now, does he got a big dick or a lot of money? Well, joke's on you. I don't got either one of those things. I'm just really fucking awesome. <laughs> it's just little random things like that. And it said, like you said earlier, some of them are, or most of them are 15 seconds, but some of them are up to 60 seconds. And I'm still trying to figure, I, I'm not even trying to figure out the app. I just have fun looking at stupid stuff. That's basically where I'm at. Uh, let's see. This is one that's gotten pretty trendy here. It is, uh, ask Google. I don't remember what they're doing, but all you need is audio for this one. Hey Google, is the coronavirus turning us into Democrats? Yeah. Coronavirus has us staying home, not working, complaining about everything and waiting on our stimulus checks. Sounds like a Democrat to me. And what they do here, this is hard to explain because it's hard to, to, you know, dissect when you're trying to look at it. Any audio or anything you find on there, you can take that audio and create your own video with it. And so things that start to get trendy, people start to do over, especially the dullards of the world. Now, just because you're on TikTok doesn't mean any of these people are actually creative. Now, many people are becoming rich with their TikTok brands. Same thing people have done with YouTube and everything else. But most people are just dullards and dimwits that you know just copy what they see, just you know parrot, mimic, sheep types. And so you'll get a bunch of those over and over again. Here is one uh, asking Siri. Where is it? Where is it? There it is. Siri, why am I single? Maybe if you'd stop being a stupid bitch and reply to the people that actually show interest in you instead of chasing someone that you know is going to break your heart. Okay. <laughs> so when I first saw that. That was funny. But then again, I start seeing other people who are, uh, are using the same uh, audio clips. I, what I don't understand is, is how the feed works. I guess it's based on... Uh, on viewership, on consumption, and then that gets thrown into your feed if you don't go in and customize it. And I'm not that interested in figuring this out exactly. But what I've noticed is, what I think is odd, because of any algorithm you're ever going to find of mine, I'm getting so much pro-Trump, so much Democrat hate, and so much Trump love in my feed. Now, maybe because integrated in the site, I don't, I'm not active enough to where they, you know, they they know where my my interests are, but I'm getting so much of it. I'm not mad. I just flip by it. Whatever, you know that that's not me. But here's a perfect example of uh, of of something that, if it was Facebook or Twitter that I have much more customized, I would never have gotten. Here it is. Where is track four? There it is. So I'm really confused. It really seems to me that the people of this entire country have lost their fucking minds. And what I'm about to say may offend some of you, but I'm sick and tired of walking on eggshells, worried about your feelings. I see signs and postings all over saying Black Lives Matter, and I'm just sitting here trying to figure out which Black Lives Matter, because it certainly isn't all of them. It can't be the unborn black babies. They're killed without a second thought. It's not black cops. They don't seem to matter. It's not my black conservative friends. They're told to shut the fuck up if they know what's best for them. It's not black business owners. Their property doesn't mean anything. It's not blacks who fought in the military. Their statues are being destroyed by protesters. So tell me again, which Black Lives Matter? 
I just can't keep up with all this shit. Two months ago, first responders were all the rage. In fact, they were heroes. We gave them free coffee, meals, cheers as they drove by. Today, we hate them and we want them defunded because they can't be trusted. Two months ago, truck drivers were heroes, too, for keeping America moving and the grocery store stocked. Today, we blocked the roads of protesters, drag them out of their trucks, and beat them half to death in the street. Out of time. Go to my profile for the rest of the rant. All right. So um, while there's a lot of stuff he just said there that's not wrong, I don't know the tone is where I would go with it. I sure shit didn't go to his profile to finish his thoughts. This is another one where a dude has got the phone under his table. Now, I don't know if this is real or just completely staged, and I don't care. And it's basically either his his girlfriend or his sister or just a female who is bitching him out while he secretly, quote-unquote, uh, records it underneath a uh, what appears to be a, a dining room table. Last time my friends were over, we were all sitting here watching a movie. You came downstairs completely nude, covered head to toe in salsa, and screamed, Who wants huevos rancheros now, bitches? <laughs> <laughs> Some of these are hysterical. That one was pretty funny. Uh, this one wasn't funny, but it, I still don't understand how people do this. So this was audio that's, that these two girls got from somewhere else, and they're working at what looks like a tilted kilt. It's kind of like the Hooters version of a Irish-looking kind of bar where all the girls are very young and hot and busty and all of that. And they're, uh, they're lip-syncing out this, which is obviously clearly... Not their voice. This will be my last clip. And I know it's a little annoying to try to tell you what the video is and then play the audio. But what the hell else am I going to do when I when I do a segment like this? It's basically throwaway. Man, I hate this job for real. I do too. When you going to quit? Yeah, I'm going to quit the same day you quit. Matter of fact, when you put your two weeks in, let me see the paper so I can write on the back. Me too. I got you. I got you. Fuck this job. Fuck this job. Bitch, I quit. Fuck this job. Because I don't really need this shit. Okay. Fuck this job. Cause the boss act like hey, a bitch. Hey, fuck this job. He always talking all that shit. Okay, fuck this job. Every everything good over job. here, bitch. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. <laughs> it was hilarious. I mean, these girls acted this thing out beautifully, and then the boss comes up. Everything okay? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And so, anyway, there you go. What is TikTok? Well, you might know very little more than you did ten minutes ago, twelve minutes ago, but that's as good of a job as I can do for you right now happy wednesday happy final wednesday of june it will be july the next time you and me have an interaction that is me just talking into your ears thank you so much for being here and doing it i appreciate you more than you will ever know at stone on air and all social media and uh hell yeah i'm not telling anything you guys don't already know have a great week talk to you again in july